Brother, good to have all of you here tonight. And if you'll turn in your Old Testament first to Deuteronomy 29, 29, good memory verse for, for us to always keep in mind when we're handling the scriptures, but particularly in the matters we're going to be dealing with tonight. And uh, who wants to, uh, Christian, you got that in front of you? Can you read it for us? A lot, loud and clear, louder. Secret things belong to the Lord, but that which is revealed, <laughs> but you got the gist of it. All right, you got the general gist of it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are secret things that He's kept within His authority that He hasn't told us. But those things which are revealed, and where are they revealed? The revealed things He's speaking about here anyway. In the Word, right? I mean, He reveals Himself in creation and in conscience, but here He's talking about revealed things in the Word. Belong to, belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law, or all the words of this scripture. So, we want to come, as we're thinking of that, we want to come to 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2. And we're going to move into this de description of some of the events associated with what we refer to as eschatology, or the doctrine of end times, the doctrine of future things. And, um, you know, we have all these different views out there with regard to the, say, the timing of the tribulation period. Some call, there's the pre-tribulation rapture, there's the mid-tribulation rapture, there's the post-tribulation rapture, there's the pre-wrath rapture, there's the partial rapture view, all these different views that are out there as well as different views on the kingdom. And we got everybody's attention, because that's why I didn't want to start. I've lost everybody. Okay, we got everybody back. All right, so, and someone has said, well, I believe the pan-tribulation view, that it's all going to pan out in the end. Well, that's cute and clever, but it's not scriptural, because there are revealed things in the Bible God has told us about, and He wants us to know. And... To me, it's fascinating here in this book of 2 Thessalonians, which we're saying is a partner book with 1 Thessalonians, right? Because they're written only a few months apart. And both of them written right after a church had been planted and started. So right after a church had been planted and started, wouldn't you agree with me, as I suggested to you on the Lord's Day, that Paul would cover in these letters the core curriculum, Right? He, would, he, he covered things when he was with them. He was only there a few weeks, as the book of Acts tells us. And then he had to leave because of persecution. So there were certain critical core issues that he wanted them to understand. And then as he's concerned, in 1 Thessalonians, he tells us he's concerned about their progress. He's concerned that they haven't thrown everything overboard and, and left the gospel and left Christ because they're suffering. And he finds out when Timothy goes and get, comes back and gives a report, they're going on for the Lord and they love you, Paul, and, and they love the Lord. And they're going on for the Lord and he's thrilled. That's in chapter 3, a great passage there of his pastoral heart. He's thrilled. He says, now I can live because you're going on for the Lord. I can live. My life means something because everything to him was the ministry, see? And hopefully that's increasingly becoming true of each one of us. Wherever we are, in our calling for the Lord, that the ministry 
that we're here for, that the Lord's kept us here for, becomes the paramount thing. And it's people, right? Ministry is to people. And so what would Paul do? Would, would he leave out eschatology? Would he leave out end times? Would he say, well, it's all going to pan out in the end, so you don't need to worry about that, worry about these other things? No, it's fascinating. I don't know if any of you have read or studied First Thessalonians recently, but in each of the five chapters, only five chapters, every one of the chapters closes with a reference to the return of the Lord. Does that indicate to us it's significant then? It sure is. It sure is. In fact, it affects our whole perspective on this life, the life to come, our priorities, what we're doing, why we're doing them. Okay? So I give all that as a preface because sometimes I've heard it said that, well, you know, eschatology, that's so divisive. Let's just stay away from things that are divisive. Let's stay away from teachings. Well, Paul didn't. Paul reinforced it. And so what we want to do, as Brother uh, Joe prayed, is to rightly handle the Word of God, right? A workman approved, rightly handling the Word of God, 2 Timothy 2.15. And so we're going to try to work through some difficult teaching here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we won't get through all the chapter, or even the first part of the chapter tonight. I'm pretty sure we won't, because I'm going to need to go slow. And we probably won't get through all of it tomorrow night. So tomorrow night and Thursday night will probably mainly be, as well as tonight, in just chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. So it begins, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word, or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So Paul's already concerned. He's only been gone a few weeks, and the devil wasn't wasting any time to get error in to these new church plants. By the way, he still does that. <laughs> Wherever you're sowing the gospel... We found that at soccer last night. Whenever you're sowing the gospel, the devil's right there. He's not taking a holiday. He's right there to obstruct and to distract and to take attention off of it. And uh, we had unparalleled stuff. Chris was going to be here tonight. I don't see him. So he was going to inform you of that maybe on Wednesday night. But, uh, but that tells us that the Lord's working too because if the devil's interested in blocking, then that tells us that something good must be happening. And that's an encouragement to us too. But notice in the verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you might wonder, I'm not just trying to, to uh, emphasize how wonderful it is we understand certain Greek words and so forth. This word is written up here for a reason. And, and I spelled it in the Greek in case you see it that way in some of the writings. But... In the English, it is parousia. That's an N. And the accent is here. It's not here. <laughs> I've heard it butchered so many times. Parousia. And, and uh, I think if we're going to quote these words from the Greek text, we need to quote them accurately, right? Respect the language. So, parousia. 
That's what that word coming in that verse is. And it will appear at least two other times in this chapter. So it's a very important word. And the reason I'm writing it out here is the unfortunate thing is in translating with the English Bibles that we have that the word was, was ever translated coming. Because the, the Greek verb for to come or coming is erkomai. It's, it's a totally different word. This word is a noun, not a verb. And it has really the idea, Mr. Vine suggested in, in one of his commentaries, he says they, the translators should have just transliterated it. You know what I mean by transliterate? Like they did baptizo. They just spelled it the same way in English as it is in the Greek and pronounced it the same way. Baptism is just spelled the same way it is in Greek and pronounced the same way. He said parousia should have been handled that way too. And you know what? If it had been, we probably wouldn't have had so much confusion and all these different alternate views that are out there. Because where this word is used, it has the idea of not a just... Like if I said, I'm coming to Joe's house, right? When would that be fulfilled? As soon as I walked in the door, right? There would be kind of a, a point in time arrival. But that's not what this word means. The, the Greek verb, erkomai, means that. That's how it's used in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The wrath to come, or the coming wrath, that's the word, the Greek verb, erkomai. So it's something that, that is coming in, in a particular point in time. Parousia has the idea more of presence. And presence with you know, an arrival and a continuing presence of someone, and it was particularly used in first century Greek outside the Bible, with regard to royalty. So if, the, if you were to have a visit from a royal person, they, come, they would arrive and stay for a little bit. Well, that's not how we use the word coming, is it? When we talk about someone coming, we don't think of it that way. We think it of something that's just point in time. And that's why it's caused so much confusion with regard to the return of our Lord. Because the parousia <coughs> includes a whole process of events. So what we're going to suggest tonight is that the parousia begins with the... I'm just going to write one letter for sake of time and, and space, all right? Begins with the rapture and definitely includes the rapture. Now some... Bible students say, well, and that's all it. The parousia just refers to the rapture. But if you look at every place the word is used, it also refers to the actual second coming, the return. I'll call that with an R2. Well, maybe I'll call it R2 and R1. So you've got the rapture, and then you've got the actual return of the Lord to the earth, two distinct events separated by seven years, according to the Bible, right? What's called the tribulation period. And it divides into two equal spaces of three and a half each. So all of this is the parousia of the Lord Jesus. Everybody with me so far? Now where would the rapture be? Because um, this in chapter 2 would be literally like tri uh, tribulation-ish, right? So the coming of the Lord would be somewhere in the middle of that. The, I mean the whole thing, but where, where would you include the rapture and say, well, that definitely is, you know, the rapture is included in it in the beginning. 
It starts from the beginning of that. From that verse? Well, we, you wouldn't get it yeah. from verse 1. You'd have to, we'd have to look at a lot of other verses, and right. we may get a chance to do that. But, but let me just show just where, where we are in these two verses first, and maybe then I'll come and get to that. Before but, you go on, that very verse that you're talking about? Right. That phrase, gathering, our gathering together to Him, what is that? The rapture. Right, so it's there. The gathering, our gathering together to Him, Good. is in yeah. fact that. In fact, it's interesting, the word, you get the word synagogue uh, from that word, uh, I think it's episynagogus, and which is the, uh, they just transliterated the Greek word synagogue from episynagogus. So it's the idea of gathering, a, a gathering, the synagogue is a gathering together, a gathering place. So it's our gathering together to him, and that, if you go back and look at the references to the parousia in the four places it occurs in 1 Thessalonians, which we're not doing tonight, of course, but you can do that by just looking up in your concordance, you'll see that he, he mentions it's the saints and the Lord being joined together in each one of those, or most of those, anyway. All right, so for the sake of time, I'm going to, you just have to follow with me and, and you can go home and check out some of them and be a good Berean, right? <laughs> and check me out on this. But for the sake of time, the parousia, I'm going to suggest to you tonight, includes the rapture, but not just the rapture, it includes the Lord dealing with the nations of the earth and the nation of Israel during the seven-year tribulation period, and then his return in judgment. Okay? All of that, the coming of our Lord. Now, the day of... I don't know if another color will really show up at the distance some of y'all are, so I'll just stay with this, this chalk, this color. We've got a couple of other references that are there, too, in this chapter, and... And the, for the sake of space again, the day of Christ, there, that's mentioned in the second verse. Everybody see that? At least it's mentioned, if you've got a King James Bible or a New King, New King James Bible, it says the day of Christ. Okay? So I'm going to stick with that for now. And the day of Christ... Well, I'm going to suggest to you, I, I probably won't have time to prove it tonight because we're trying to cover more than just those two verses, but the day of Christ includes the rapture, includes the tribulation period, includes the kingdom to follow, and includes the, I'll put a T, the great white throne judgment. All of that is the day of Christ. Is there scripture references for that? Well, of course, but I don't have them tonight. Okay. So we, we, that's why I say it's going to be tonight, tomorrow night. So we'll get them at one of those nights. Yeah, right. Right. And then, while we're looking at these references, then you have the day of the Lord. I'll talk about the uh, textual differences here in a minute between the uh, critical text and the Textus Receptus, but the day of the Lord is specifically an Old Testament time frame. It's almost, almost all the references to it, or most of them by far, are in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, Joel, what's well, in all three chapters of Joel, right? And Zechariah and so many other places. 
and the day of the Lord begins in darkness, so it does not include the rapture. The day of the Lord begins with the signing of the peace treaty in Daniel chapter 9. And the beginning of the tribulation period includes the tribulation period, which I agree I've got here out of proportion, seven years and a thousand years, and includes the kingdom. The day of the Lord includes the seven-year tribulation period plus the thousand-year kingdom. That's the day of the Lord. Okay? Okay, just to make sure that we don't get all confused. Right. If I were to recap what you said, there's overlap, right? Yep. Because you just said the day of Christ includes the tribulation and the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Yep. And the day of the Lord includes the tribulation and the thousand years. So there's obvious overlap. Right. Okay. Right. And then, of course, the, in the day of God that Peter refers to is over here. In 2 Peter 3. That is after the great white throne judgment. Alright? So you see how seeing how this all lays together helps us to understand what he's referring to at any particular point in time. Now, just to mention, just to make reference to the textual differences in most of you probably have Bibles that are, that are not the King James or the New King James. We were talking about that at the Lethans this afternoon, so they're going to get a regurgitation on this. But um, I could go into a lot more detail on that issue tonight. I could spend the whole session tonight on that, and that probably isn't what you came here to hear. But um, the, the more I study the... the textual traditions, and we're talking about the Greek text, the New Testament, the Old Testament text is pretty well, the Masoretic text is pretty well recognized as, as being the authoritative one for the Old Testament. But there was a battle over that in the first centuries, but that's been pretty well settled. But with the New Testament, it's come down to three textual traditions, three of them. And all your Bibles flow out from one of these textual traditions, and your introductions in your Bibles will describe what they are, what their basis. You've got the Textus Receptus, which was the text of the Bible most of the first 1800 years of the church. In the 1850-1860 time frame, there were some manuscripts discovered uh, that then they developed what they called the critical or minority text. Two different names for the same textual tradition. Critical or minority text. The revised version was impacted by it. The J&D Darby version was impacted by it. The uh, American Standard version of 1901, the ASV of 1901, and then the new American Standard was a, an improving of the ASV in 1960. The, of course, the revised standard version of 1952. I, the revised standard version of 1952. And the, all of these were impacted by these di different textual traditions. And then the third one is called the majority text, and it's an eclectic group of some of the manuscripts from the critical text and some from the Textus Receptus mixed together. Okay? These are textual traditions now. So th th their whole line of texts, you know, the, 
that the argument for Westcott and Hort and the different ones that were involved in the late 1800s with the critical text or minority text, which the New American Standard particularly is based on, and the NIV, I think, is based on the majority text. The ESV, I think, is probably based on the critical text as well. But the argument was these manuscripts they discovered were older. They were closer to the original. They went back to like 180 A.D., where the manuscripts used for the Textus Receptus go back to around 400 A.D. They don't go as close to the original. So the argument was, well, older is better. But that's, that's not a logical argument when you're talking about copies. If you're talking about originals, maybe so. But when you're talking about copies, older isn't better. Quantity of manuscripts in agreement is better. Because the first generation of copyists can make a mistake, right? Are we talking about human error? Copying, you know, they're hand copying, right? Here, they're, they're the original, and they're doing letter for letter, word for word, and they're checking it. But they're human beings. We make mistakes when we're typing and when we're copying things, right? And all it takes is the first generation. So you could have the first generation right after the original manuscript. By the way, everybody understands we don't have the original manuscripts. So we don't have the originals. All we have is copies. That's how the Lord chose to preserve His Word. And so what we want to do to get to the actual, we want to get as close to the original as possible with the Textus Receptus, which was commissioned by King James I in England around 1611. And he, he gathered together, I think there were something like 400 different ministers in his era that were from different denominations, and they were students of the Scriptures, experts in the languages, and they brought them together, and they gathered together the manuscript, manuscripts that Wycliffe used before that, the manuscripts that Tyndale used, the manuscripts that Erasmus used, all these different ones, and they put it together. And I, I've forgotten, there's several hundred, I think it's close to a thousand or eleven hundred manuscripts that are word for word in agreement. Well, that's a miracle to me. That's, that's a miracle. Only God could preserve that. But that's what they got, and that's what the Textus Receptus is based on. The critical text has only, I think, 140, something like that, manuscripts that are in agreement, and they even have, there's some deviations in some of the lettering of, of the, you know, words like and and but and the and things like that that are left out or added or different things, but so that, those aren't major deviations. But, but so statistically, the weight goes towards the Textus Receptus, in my view. Statistically, it's overwhelming. Now, if you're interested in doing more research in this, not everybody cares about going into this. Uh, Art Farstad, a dear brother that was the general editor of the New King James Version, he was in uh, an assembly there in Dallas, and uh, he wrote a book called The New King James Version in the Tradition of the... the um, I forgot, the, the uh, Tradition of the King James or something like that. But it, it's not just what he points out in that book is, and it's a paperback, it's out of print, but I, I was able to find a used copy a few years ago on the internet. But, so it's not that thick, and it's, it's a very good read, and it helps give a lot of this information, the basis for it. But uh, basically, the, the, uh, the New King James Version, they're, they're sticking with the manuscript tradition that, it, that even Wycliffe and Tyndale, and really Wycliffe and Tyndale, built more into the English version we have 
than even the men in 1611 did. And they gave their lives for it too, right? So that's why, to me, it's not just, you know, I'm not a KJO guy. King James only, you know, like, like you hear in some of the conservative circles and that. But I am a Texas Receptus best guy. And I've come to that conclusion, and you have to come, come to that conclusion on your own as a Christian before the Lord, on what version, but to me it's really important what version of the Bible I'm going to have. You know, I want to get as close to the original. I'm a student of the scriptures. Uh, I'm a workman that I want to be approved before the Lord, 2 Timothy 2.15. And so it's really important. It's not just a, uh, a matter of, well, you know, who cares? It does. To me, I, I care. I think that's important. And especially if you're teaching the work. And one of the things I pointed out on Sunday, I'll just mention this, and then we'll move on into the, the text here. One of the things you can't do as a teacher of the Word or a student of the Word is hop from manuscript tradition to manuscript tradition. Like I've heard some preachers, even you know, in our churches, church circles will do that. They'll say, well, like here in 2, Timothy, in 2 Thessalonians 2, well, here I'll go with the, the critical text and call it the day of the Lord instead of the day of Christ because I don't really know how to fit the day of Christ into the overall scheme here, and so I don't know how to interpret it, so I'm going to go with day of the Lord. Well, you can't do that. Because if you're going to follow that textual tradition, you've got to follow it all the way through the entire New Testament. One thing we can't do in 2013 is hop back and forth from textual traditions that go back almost 2,000 years, right? That's a whole line of text. And so if, if you do that, then you don't believe that John 8, 1 through 11 is part of the Bible. And you don't believe that half of Mark 16 is part of the Bible. And all the other deviations that are different between the critical text and the textus receptus. I come to the conclusion that John 8, 1 through 11 is integral to the Gospel of John. Probably the hinge of, of the entire book of the Gospel of John and so, no, I'm not going to leave it out. And that alone is pretty well when I decided to jettison the critical text. Okay? I can't imagine why a, a sincere scribe who's copying would leave out a section like that of the Bible. But, but somebody did, right? In order to develop that textual tradition, some scribe or group of scribes decided to leave that out. And you can argue different reasons why. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery, and, you know, she gets forgiven. They say, oh, that's going to promote sin. We better leave that out. <laughs> well, that's not what a scribe is asked to do. They're asked to copy the manuscript, not to interpret it, not to edit it, to fit in with some theological view they might have, see. And same thing for a translator. A translator is supposed to translate they're not supposed to take their theology and change the wording or change the meaning to fit with some theological scheme they have. They're not asked to do that. Let the Bible teacher do that. Let the interpreter do that. But there you've, got a, you've got the copyist, you've got the translator, and then you've got the interpreter and the Bible teacher and student, right? So all that to say, we come then to verse 2. I guess I should ask, are there any questions? There may be a lot of questions on that, and it may go in a lot, a lot different direction we want to go tonight. But I will ask if there's any questions I can maybe give a brief answer to. 
Everybody got it. Okay, Dave. Would you say um, there are times where the text of the various traditions may match, and therefore referring to other translations to see a different, shall we say, English rendering of the same Greek words may be helpful? Yes. All right, so not every time you hear someone say, well, the New American Standard puts it this way, that they're necessarily jumping tradition and messing up the interpretation of a passage, correct? Correct. Okay, because I mean, it would be easy for someone to think, well, every time I now hear someone quoting from another translation, uh, that, uh, that, that, you know... But I would check them out. Correct. Because most of the time they are doing that when I've checked them out. Most of the time they are... They don't want to deal with the, an interpretational problem, and so they're, they're hopping over there to do that. For example, um, you're reading through Romans, and it says, you know, um, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, and New King, the King James, God forbid, whereas uh, uh, meganoito would be better translated, as it is in some of those other translations, may it never be, Right? And so it's a more literal rendering towards the English, but it's not necessarily jumping tradition. Right. But so. uh, while we're in Romans, because we were talking about that at the Lethems, in verse 1 of chapter 8, for instance, the second half of the verse is left out in the critical text. Well, it's a very important statement, and of course it's repeated in verse 4 of chapter 8, so it, we know it's part of the Bible. But why would somebody leave that out when it's right there in verse 4? You know, to me, I, just, I can't fathom why an honest, sincere copyist would do that. But somebody did to develop that. Now, of course, in the New American Standard Bibles that you have, they will leave it in there because they don't dare just leave a blank space, just like they do with John 8, 1 through 11. They print it, but they bracket it and put an asterisk and say, this isn't in the better manuscripts. Who says, you're saying it's the better manuscripts. I think it's not the better man. I think that that's the corrupt manuscripts. The better man, one of the two is right. One of the two is wrong, right? They're not both right. So one of them's wrong, and, and so we have to make that assessment. And I think a lot of people then will, John 8, 1 to 11, they'll leave it out of the study of John chapter 8, or that whole section from 7 to 10 in John. And, or they'll say, well, it's bracketed. You know, a, a young uh, disciple of the Lord might say, well, you know, maybe that's not that important because it's bracketed here. I see this note. And so it, it does affect, it is a discipleship issue. It does affect people in their growth. Yeah, Christian. I, I two questions. Yeah. I've never heard of Texas receptions Okay. Just means received text is okay, the Latin. So, so did you, is it fair to say that the Texas receptus is embodied in New King James and King James? Is that, is that what you said? Yeah. Those are the versions that have it. So if you had that, you'd have Texas receptus. Right. Is there anything else that has Texas Receptus? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, second question. Does the Texas Receptus leave anything out that's somewhere else? Not to my knowledge. I mean, there may be little words, uh, no, you know, the Lord's name, chunk. Christ, Jesus, you know, that, those are all noted in, in this particular Bible, this particular New King James Version notes the deviations at, at each of the places between the other corresponding textual traditions, which is a real help. To, to see, and then you begin to see it, you know, who would leave out the Lord's name, you know, in a particular place, and yet that happened. Steve, did you? Yeah, you know, I, since the Holy Spirit leads us in all truth, and the peace, let the peace of God rule in the heart, right. we ask wisdom, God will give it to us, right. to be able to discern these things. Now, uh, Hebrews says you reach maturity where you discern good and evil, 
the ability gives you. That's when right. You're young in the faith, you know, you need guidance and so forth. The Holy Spirit's there. He speaks through other teachers and so forth. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as, as good Bereans, we go through the Scripture to confirm. And sometimes we can get so intellectual about things that, you know, God makes it simple for the... Actually, it's easier for the less wise sometimes to understand these things than the... He says that the wise of this world, not many are called. Paul was an extremely intelligent person, so he right. got to pick certain things. But our mind can run past God's hadn't shown us something. So it's the Holy Spirit. As we grow, the Holy Spirit begins to realize a piece about what we're right. learning. And we begin to mature, and we begin to understand and discern false and, and truth. And it's... It's, it's the Holy Spirit's job to confirm these things within us. Right. If we're... From the text, though. What's yeah, he going to confirm exactly. it from? It's going to be well, from here. Not intuition. not the Holy Spirit. See, it's not intuition. Right. That was a big thing in the Middle Ages. You know, that, well, it's intuitive. You know, when I get the feeling that it's right, that it's right. No. No, it's got... That's what the Bereans would go to the text. Right. To the scriptures. Absolutely. But it's the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. Confirming it in our spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness in our spirit when we're children. Right. That's experiential in a sense. Yes. I mean, the scripture confirms that. Right. But it's the Holy Spirit that leads us in a peaceful way to understand these things. Right. And not necessarily, it's tremendous to go through these things. And, but the simple mind that God gives, I believe, through the Holy Spirit, to listen and, dis and begin to discern these things, because there's a lot of teachers out there that just, they know all this stuff, but it just not quite sits well with the Holy Spirit, peace of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, tuition on your own, yes, you, you know, you don't go on feelings, you don't go on all these different things, but it's the Holy Spirit that's helping us. Well, what we're doing here tonight is we're not trying to do an intellectual exercise to just kind of make us a bunch of eggheads. There's a deviation in the text here. Right. It says day of Christ in my Bible, and if you've got an American standard, it doesn't. Right. So we got to be able to explain that. It's that practical. Yeah, so that, that is something, we're, that's what we're trying to do. we got to give it, have an explanation for it. So that's what we're trying to get to. I disagree. Okay, you're right. You have that right. Well, no, we have to make an assessment on what we do know. That's all I'm saying. Right, right, and I've made mine, but right. I've told you, you've got to make yours based on the information. I've told you to research it out, each one individually, right? I'm not telling you that only use the textus receptus. I'm just telling you how I arrived at my decision about it, okay? You see the difference? There's two possibilities, the two main groups of the manuscripts. Well, three, really, but... Well, we do know. We do. We don't. We don't no know in the sense of we. We got an original. We can compare it to. That's true. We don't. But we do know that there are things that uh, agree in the scriptures, and there are consistencies in the mind of God expressed in the Word of God. Number one, 
And number two, we do know, statistics, we do know that, that a large group of manuscripts that agree together and a, a group that just suddenly gets discovered in the age of the evolution in, in the age But they were, but they were, and the Lord preserved it that way. That's all I'm saying. The Lord preserved a large quantity that way. If he wanted to change that, he could have, right? But he didn't. That's all we're saying. He also preserved quite a large number of the other ones. So again, the important No, he didn't. That, that's not true. I can't let you say that because it's not true. There's more in one group than the other, but they're both large. No, there's, there's a huge difference. As I, I told you the number. It's in, it's in Art Farstad's book. Huh? You can believe that. All I'm saying, don't say that, that and, and make them think differently than the truth. The truth is that there's a huge weight in the Textus Receptus compared to the critical text. That's all I'm saying. You're saying that's not true, but it is true. That's not what I said. It's not true. I'm okay. saying that the only advantage you have is in more in number versus the other argument is we go back closer. And I'm not saying we is meaning me, but that's what their argument is. We go back closer to the original. I've already said all that, Christian. There's no reason to repeat it. We want to try to get through the study. But does everybody understand what we're saying here? Is this not clear? Well, I think the, not to, this is my one comment, I think. And I know you agree with this. It's not like, because I read New American Standard that I'm a heretic, right? So the bottom line is the deviations we're talking about, they're going to agree. You know, We're going to be believing the same thing. And if I want to say and I want to promote my theology because mine says day of the Lord and I'm going to include all this stuff that's not there without taking the whole scripture and what he was saying, uh, what Steve was saying is that, you know, a student of the word and the Holy Spirit, when you start, you know, going to different passages, you say, hey, listen, that's not true. You know, whatever it is, the theology, you know, whatever you're going to right. formulate. So, you know, the bottom line is these, these things is while, you know, it might be interesting to some people... In this particular case, I mean, they're both, you're going to have the Word of God in your hands, right? Whether you're holding that one or this one, right? I mean, you would agree with that, right? Yeah, but, but what I'm, I'll say it again for the fourth time, just so everybody understands, and then, then we can move on, I hope. What I'm saying is, I've just given you the evident facts that are out there. You make your assessment. You study it out for yourself. If, if you want to use the New American Standard Bible, that's between you and the Lord. I've made my assessment, and I've told you how I got there. I didn't make my assessment and tell, tell you how I got there so I could tell you what to do. Okay, everybody understands that, I hope? I just, I just was transparent and honest in telling you my experience and what I have studied out to this point and how I arrived at my decision on it. That's all I'm saying, Okay. But the, the differences are there. We have it right here in this verse. And it has caused, the, the fact of the difference has caused a lot of confusion theologically in the history of the church. That's a fact too. You can dispute it if you want to, but it's a fact. And so we have to, we're just acknowledging that. You're going to deal with people on the street, people you witness to that are working with these different things and we've got to have an answer for the hope that's within us, right? We want to be able to explain it to some extent. That's all we're trying to do. Two, two, especially verse two. You basically outline the foundation of how the interpretation comes through. That's right. Yeah, that's why I'm doing all this. Yeah, because we have this this statement here in verse two. Uh, I'll start from the beginning of the verse. Not to be soon shaken in mind, 
or trouble, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as if, and the us would be the apostles, right? Which means it would be the authoritative word of God. So someone is writing, this is an early pseudepigrapha. Pseudo means false, pigrapha means writing. This is an early writing of someone who's claiming to be one of the apostles, but is not. Maybe he claimed to be Paul. And he's writing to these young Christians. You say, well, a Christian wouldn't do that. I don't know if a Christian would do that or whether it's a non-Christian. All we know is somebody's doing it. Somebody's trying to disturb and shake up the Christians. Welcome to the church, right? This is, it still happens today. And so they're, they're writing it as if from us to claim authority of it, see? That's why all these pseudepigraphic writings have been written that are on the internet today. The Epistle of Barnabas and the Gospel of Thomas and these ones that, I'm telling you, our young people are being impacted by it. Because the internet's there, they go out and they see it and they start reading it and they, they start saying, wow, well, maybe there is a fifth gospel. Maybe we left one out. And they, see how that gets back to your, your translation and what Bible you use? You see how important it is? Because now it's on the internet. And they can go and they get these things. And, and the young people are saying, well, how do you know? You know, let's, like Steve's saying, let's, be, let's have peace here. Let's have the Holy Spirit. I mean, how do you know the Epistle of Barnabas wasn't true? Even though 2,000 years of church history have said that it's a false writing. For some of the younger generation, they don't believe that. They say, hey, it's out there. Let's study it out. Well, it's totally false. So whatever time they spend studying out the Epistle of Barnabas or the Gospel of Thomas, or these other ones that are out there, they're not studying the Bible, the true one. And that's all the devil wants them to do. He just wants to sidetrack them. He wants to get them away from the Word of God, just like he wants to do with all of us, see? That's why it's that important. And so Paul says, this false letter has been, it's either a false message, letter, or spirit, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So they're worried that the Lord has already begun the day of Christ. Now he has told them in the first letter in chapter 4, right, about the rapture, 4, 13 to 17, and it is, they were concerned that some of their brethren had died, you know, physical death, probably because of the persecution. And, and they said, well, what about them? They're not going to be here for the rapture then. What's going to happen to them? Where are they going to be? So Paul says, he's trying to comfort them, right? He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. He said, they will, we will not precede them at the rapture. That they will be raised out of the graves. Our bodies will be changed. And we will meet the Lord in the air, right? That's what it says in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. And then in chapter 5, someone says, well, 1 Thessalonians talks about the rapture, but he doesn't talk about the timing of it. But he does, because the first 11 verses of chapter 5 go right with 4.13 to 17, talking about the same subject. He doesn't change the subject, and he moves into talking about the day of the Lord. And the rapture precedes the day of the Lord. He says, you're not of darkness. The day of the Lord is of those in darkness. You're not children of darkness. You're children of light. You know what's coming. God has informed you, see? So the day of the Lord follows the rapture. And, and to use the day of the Lord here, I think, causes more confusion than help. Uh, okay, 
this is why I think it's, I, I'm more confused now. Okay. Okay, and, and I'll tell you why. All okay. right. And it, it is about the timing. It's okay. It's about real timing. I'm reading this and saying the day of Christ. Right. You just said, and you don't really, we're going to find out where else you get this from because there's other texts I'm sure to support it. But right. You said the day of Christ includes the rapture. Right. You said that. Yep. Okay. So therefore, if I go, the day of Christ, let no one deceive you, that it will not come until the lawless one is revealed. Mm -hmm. But the rapture comes before the lawless one is revealed. Well. And how can it include the rapture if it has to, the timing's off. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because. Just in basic. Well, let's, you're going to verse 3 now, so let's go to verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of Christ, will not come unless the first thing is the falling away comes first, doesn't it? It says the falling away comes first, and the man of Okay, well, let's, let's stay with the, let's go take each one as they come. The falling away is the apostasy. Everybody understand what apostasy means? An apostate is someone, it isn't someone, an unbeliever, that doesn't know the truth. That's not an apostate. That's an ignorant unbeliever, right? Ignorant being ignorant of the truth of the gospel. An apostate is someone who understands the truth and leaves it, right? Judas Iscariot would be a prime example of that. So they have to understand the truth before they can leave it. So they don't receive the Lord as Savior, but they understand the gospel and they say, that's not for me. Okay, that's an apostate, falling away. Now, Paul predicted in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that there would be a falling away before the rapture. Right? The first nine verses of 2 Timothy 3. He describes what those people were going to be like. Uh, you may want to look at that now or, or look at it later on your own. But in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And he goes on to describe the characteristics of what that's going to be. So you're identifying that falling away as 2 Timothy 3. Well, 2 Timothy 3 is an apostasy, and this word is apostasy. So I'm saying, I think they're the same. Okay? So, um, that day shall not come unless the falling away comes first, which was consistent with what we see there in 2 Timothy, and there are a few other places that doesn't come to mind right now in the New Testament that talk about that. That, in fact, we see it happening in our day already, don't we? We see in an unprecedented, unparalleled way. I mean, the biggest church in, in America is in my home city. My home city is really Fall River, Massachusetts, but the, the city I'm living in now. And, and For those that don't know, it's... You got a tape on here. Joel Osteen's Lakewood oh, Church. The city. I didn't ask the name of the man. I said the name of the 40, city. Forty thousand members, and 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 if you're not sure, you don't want to take my word for it. I'm not going to even tell you what he teaches. You go look it up. And Google it yourself. Now you called his. You called his congregation a church. He calls it Lakewood Church. He calls it that. 
It's on the sign. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I didn't call it that. He calls it that. All right. So, and and I understand. I was talking to somebody, one of the brethren, the other uh, day, and and he's come down here, and he fills up one of the biggest auditoriums in the area when he comes down here. So he's not just popular in Houston. He's popular. They put him on the news. They let him talk on the news. Yeah. All right. So, and as I understand it, and I've only heard bits and pieces from him firsthand. Most of it I've gotten second or third hand from other Christians. He, he, it's not the gospel that the Bible teaches that he promotes. Now, I'm not going to go into more detail than that. You can search that out for yourself. But Paul in Galatians chapter 1 has a pretty strong word for somebody that doesn't preach the true gospel. What does he say? Let him be accursed. Anathema. Strong word from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul with regard to people who twist the Gospels particularly because it's people's eternal destiny that's at stake. Not just their sanctification, which is important to God too, but it's their eternal destiny. All right? So these are important matters, right? You're beginning to see that, I think, that you know, we can't be flippant about it and, and, and say that you know, we, we've got to land on solid foundation truth. The, the word of God is sure and stands fast, right? 2 Timothy 2. And so, we have these ideas that are out there. And, and there's this drifting away. Now, they still, are, as Dave pointed out, they, they call themselves a church. If they didn't call themselves a church, Dave, then, then they probably wouldn't, we couldn't call them apostate, really. Right? It's the fact they call themselves a church and claim to be Christian and claim to be disciples of Christ that makes them apostate. Uh, I think it began in the 60s, yeah. Uh, but it has accelerated the last 25 years. And, and you'd have to be living under a rock not to see it. I mean, it, and you don't have to be a believer to see it. Because the unbelievers are saying that. They're saying it in the news. Journalists are saying it. Philosophers are saying it. They're seeing these, these changes happen, and they're happening rapidly. There's an escalation in it. It's going, happening more quickly as we move along. All right. Well, the Lord said through the Apostle Paul, that there would be a falling away first, before the rapture, before the day of Christ. Well, I, I'll, I'm not going to debate that. Because, okay. Because I, I just read Second Timothy, and the rapture is in that place that you tell you. He didn't even talk about the rapture. But no, he's talking about the falling away. The falling away, but you said it was, it was talking about it preceding the rapture in that other text. No, I didn't say that, because I've never said that. I don't believe that. No. We can play the tape, the, the thing no, back no. and see. <laughs> All I'm saying is this. This reads like, unless the following comes first, the apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's all I'm saying. In the context, it sounds like those two things must happen first. And first, before what? The day of, that's all. It, in the text, okay. it just reads that all way. Right. I'm following that's all I'm saying. I'm coming now to, your, to this, the, the, clause, the clause you're concerned about. The second clause, after the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay? He's revealed. It's the same word we get, apocalypsis. We get the word, the apocalypse or the revelation from that. It's an unveiling. It's an unveiling. And it occurs two or three other times in this section. He's revealed in several different ways then. If you just study it out and follow the word, it appears another several times. He's revealed in different ways. He's not just revealed in one way. So what 
revelation could this be of the man of sin? All he's saying here is it's possible, it's within the realm of possibility, in my theology, that the man of sin can be revealed in some way before the rapture. And he maybe already has been unveiled in God's mind. And we may not understand who he is, or we may understand who he is before the rapture. So the All that God is saying, he's going to be unveiled before the rapture. But revealed to who? Like it, doesn't it doesn't say. It, it just says revealed, so, right? So but revealed requires an object. Like, it has no meaning if it's not revealed. Well, like it, revealed means uncovered. So right. God doesn't need anything to be revealed. Yeah, so, so there's going to be something that would indicate, you know, this person will, yeah. So we, you, so your theory, and he's probably alive now. Your theory is not just that he's alive. Right. But that somebody, perhaps someone in this room, may actually get it and know that's the guy. I'm, I'm saying, I mean, it's not a theory. All I'm saying is that, in my theology, is not outside the realm of possibility. That's all he's saying. Huh? It's not outside the realm of possibility. It wouldn't be inconsistent with any other scripture for that to happen. Right? That's all I'm saying. Any other comments or questions on that so far? It may not the time to speak because you're not finished going through your test. Right. My question always is, was this learned from studying the scripture or somebody teaching that particular? I mean, it, it all comes from dispensationalism. It's just a doctrine, basically, to pre treat You mean what, what he's saying here in the text or what I'm saying? No, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I mean, when, when I, we all evaluate Bible teachers. And if Joe's an attorney, if he's going to court, he's going to get the best witness that established his testimony uh, over years, and it's and we can pretty much have confidence in that. But we all do that with everything we hear. Right. We all evaluate. evaluate it and weigh it. This person's been consistent. That one's not. And I used to think this way. I was taught that. The more I study it. It's very consistent as Joe's leading these questions that, I mean, we start with the Lord speaking first. You look at history, church history, this doctrine wasn't a major church doctrine until the 19th century. Oh, it's it. I just said, Steve, it's yeah. in every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. At this was not taught within the church, basically. Follow, let, let me, let's, go, let's just give due diligence to that statement first, okay? Let's, I didn't want to take the time to do it. But, but let's do it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. I want everybody to see this with your own eyes, okay? This isn't something that was developed in the 1800s. This is what Paul's theology is. And he's teaching it to a new church plant. This is important to young Christians, in other words, okay? Verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay? So there's a reference to his return, the wrath to come, right? Okay? Now, now the word arousia doesn't occur there. Its first occurrence is at the end of chapter 2, in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his parousia, his coming. Okay? 
chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. All right, chapter 4, verse 17. Or really, the, the, the word parousia occurs in verse 15, so we'll go up there. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Okay, so where did he get it, Steve? By the word of the Lord, right? This is, this is a direct revelation. This, well, I'm just saying, no, I know, yeah. Uh, but we're just saying that the emphasis here is on the second coming, right? And the preparation for it. For this we say to you that by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive remain until the parousia of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, and so forth. Right to the end of that chapter. And then in chapter 5, in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls you as faithful and will do it. So, the parousia, the return of the Lord, is in every one of those chapters. And it's already been in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, where he's made reference, as we saw on Sunday, to the righteous judgment of God in verse 5. Right? So, that is something, and of course it's going to be in chapter 2, in, in, that we're in now. So, all we're saying is that the, the, uh, the parousia is... An imp let, let me ask it. Let me ask. Is there anyone in doubt tonight that the parousia is not important to the Apostle Paul in teaching these young Christians, given what we just read? Absolutely. Okay. So it's not anything that was developed by John Darby in the 1800s or anything like that. This is Pauline theology. No word of scripture says it's a free rapture. You have to come to that conclusion. That's right. That's right. Which we're not we're not studying theology on the rapture tonight. We're studying Second Thessalonians. It's actually part of it because he's you're establishing the fact that there is a preacher of rapture. Not everybody believes that. No, I know. Okay, so, I mean, it's not... But that's the, that, that happens to be the doctrinal position of this assembly. It's on the back of the, of the bulletin. And, and yet, okay, so I'm teaching no, consistent with what the elders believe here. I understand it completely, but the Apostle Paul went to places to present certain truths that weren't there either. So it's not that we disfellowship with someone. Well, we're not talking about fellowshipping or disfellowshipping no, no, tonight. No, it's happened. Uh, with people who don't hold that view. At this assembly? Yeah. Well, Somebody's been put out of the assembly because they didn't well, believe? I, well, it's been uh, not with the letter. Well, let's, let's not go into all that no, tonight. No, if you want to no, talk to the elders, you can do that no, on your no, own. I, we want to build up all the saints yeah, here. Well, I, you say we want to have communication. Yeah. I just think there's a foundation there that's building, being built. The people should look at it. I'm not saying that it's in error. I think it's very correct to, to examine the history Exactly. Okay. Okay. But let me, Steve, if you if you don't mind, no, no, we've already we've only got maybe ten more minutes here, and 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 we could spend till midnight talking about the various views of the rapture. That isn't the intent of this particular Bible study. And you and I can have that discussion on our own if we want to some time. But we're thinking of all the saints here. We're in Second Thessalonians chapter two. I'm presenting to you a case for the day of Christ. Okay? That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to tell you all the other different views. They're in time. And, and that the day of Christ 
works. It can work in the scenario that's, that's presented here. That's all I'm trying to show you. Day of the Lord also works, but, uh, but the day of Christ works in this scenario. What's the distinction between the day of Christ? Yeah, why does it matter? We don't even know why it matters yet. Why, why, the, why there's even a, a, an issue of the difference. Forget this issue. The two, day of Christ versus day of the Lord, I don't think any of us, I mean, I don't want to speak very well. They overlap, they do this, they do that. Like, what's the difference? Who cares? Is there a distinction? Well, the distinction is this. The distinction is that, that there's a, there are various views on when the rapture takes place. So it is a and, rapture. And, and so some that, that believe, that, you know, that would apply, that would use the day of the Lord in that verse, put the rapture at the midpoint of the tribulation. Some put it just after the midpoint in the pre-wrath position. And some put it in a post-tribulation position. And they all use day of the Lord in that verse to get there. Okay, I so it is important. I don't think that you have to do that even if you put the day of the Lord. Maybe not. I, I, but I'm, just, I'm yeah. just making that comment that there are different other views out there. And, and you know, so they base it on an interpretation of Scripture. Okay? So let's, let's go a little further in uh, chapter 2. Because now he's going to give some of the characteristics you got a question? Bring it out with everybody. Oh, the question was, um, why, why does it matter when the rapture is going to take place? Well, whether it's pre-made or... One, one is we want to rightly handle the Word of God, and if the Word of God's clear on it, we want to rightly handle it. That'd be one reason. That'd be the first, the highest reason. But to me, it involves a lot of practical things, too, because if I believed in a... Well, any other view other than the pre-trib rapture, I would be looking for Antichrist. I wouldn't be looking for Christ because Antichrist is going to be looking for me to take my head off, according to Revelation chapter 20. So I would be stockpiling food, water, ammunition, like some people do or are doing in America today, and I'd be looking for a place to hide from him, especially if I knew he was already almost about to be revealed. I'm going with the Jews. When they go to hide, I'm going with them. Okay. All right. <laughs> but but two-thirds of them are going to get killed, so you might get caught well, up in that. My group. odds may be <laughs> so, so it affects your whole view of how you're living this life. See, Rachel, if, if I'm living and worried about the Antichrist, that, that's the whole point of what Paul's trying to do in both these letters is to comfort the Christians. Look. Christ has taken care of this for you. You don't need to be worried about going through the righteous judgment of God. He bore your judgment on the tree. Now you can just worry about living for Him, serving Him, surrendering to Him, and being a testimony and bearing fruit unto Him. That's what you need to be preoccupied with, he says. He never, in any of Paul's writings, tells the Christians to start stockpiling and getting ready for the tribulation period. If he's a good pastor, he would. If I'm going to go through it, I would want some instructions here. I mean, my city over there at least gives me instructions on how to survive a hurricane and what to stockpile, right? Even, even an unbelieving worldly city does that. So also, without a correct understanding of the rapture, biblical understanding, you become vulnerable to deception. That's right. And that's exactly what happened with the Thessalonians. Right, right. And that's why the gospel called it. So I, I'm, I'm not saying he was teaching, you know, free mid or, or post, but he was saying it was important and you need to consider it. 
Well, just, and I'll, I'll close with this because uh, I guess you want to close at 8.30. It's 8.25. So um, you all have been patient to go. We've gone probably longer than we planned to. But let me, let me go to 2 Timothy again in verse, and I can give, we can give Brother Andres, who I don't think, I didn't see him come in. We'll give him credit because he, he pointed this verse out to me last night. It was in my notes, but it's a powerful verse dealing with this. But he, he we're talking about the whole the preterism thing, you know, that we were talking about on Sunday. But look at what Paul says in, uh, well, he's, he, in, in uh, Andrea says, my brother Thomas, he actually gave their names. <laughs> now, Timothy's in Ephesus, right? Been left there to build up the assembly after Paul spent some time there. And uh, we'll start in verse 16. But, sh but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So false teaching... Leads, leads to false living, ungodliness. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. And verse 17, And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. So Timothy knows who they are. Paul knows who they are. The Ephesian saints probably know who they are. They're probably in the assembly. Or in the city anyway. If they have, Maybe they've been put out of the assembly who have strayed concerning the truth, saying the resurrection is already past. That's preterism. That's amillennialism. Amillennial theology teaches that the resurrection is already occurred. We're, I mean, that's, we're in the kingdom. That's what amillennial means. And they overthrow the faith of some. That's pretty practical, I would say. That's pretty pastoral. Do you care about overthrowing the faith of anybody? I do. I don't want to overthrow the faith of someone. But these guys, these two that he names, are doing that. They strayed concerning the truth, and here they were. They were probably discipled by the Apostle Paul when he spent three years in Ephesus. He knows who they are, but he has to point them out. Why? Because he wants to emulate them? No, because he wants to protect the saints so that more don't get overthrown in their faith. And the issue is the resurrection. See, preterism teaches that the resurrection, basically what preterism comes down to is your regeneration is the resurrection. The resurrection is key to the whole New Testament. Yeah. That's all the apostles preached on. But they're saying the that but when you're, the regeneration is when you're born again, your conversion. They're saying that your conversion is your entry into the kingdom. That is the kingdom. That it, it, was, it started in 70 AD. That when the temple was destroyed, Christ came back, they said, then. By the preaching of the gospel and the building up of the church. Which there's an element of truth to that, right? There always is an element of truth to any false teaching. Otherwise it doesn't overthrow the faith of some. So they, and, and that's still prominent today, as I pointed out on Sunday. Okay? So, where the kingdom is in this deal, if we're in the kingdom now before the rapture, or there's no rapture in amillennial theology, there's no rapture. Period. You don't have to worry about pre, post, mid. There isn't any. You're in it. You're in the kingdom already. So there's no 
There's no day of the Lord. I mean, they, they allegorize all these words because they're in the Bible all through the place and there's sufferings and under the day of the Lord and so forth. And Amos chapter 5, he says, it's going to be like the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of darkness and terror. And it's going to be like you run away from a bear and you put your hand on the wall and then a snake bites you. And then you run away from there and something else gets you. A fire gets you. In other words, it's bad. It's, that's metaphorical language. We're saying it's going to, you can't escape the terror of it. Well, that's the day of the Lord. And that fits with what we're laying out here. A clear time frame talked about in the Bible. The Bible also talks about the day of the Lord includes light, the glory of the Lord, the law going forth from Jerusalem to all the nations, all the nations coming to Jerusalem to worship. None of those things have ever happened yet. So we're saying that that's part of the day of the Lord here, the beginning of the kingdom. The judgment of the sheep and the goats occurs right here. So you have a judgment here, the Bema judgment of believers, which really, some believe, happens the whole seven-year period at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then you have the judgment of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, at the end of the tribulation period, before the kingdom. He clearly says, when the Son of Man comes to sit on His glorious throne, well, that's what He's going to do here. And then you have the great white throne judgment. That's very clear in the book of Revelation. So there are three different judgments span over a period of time. So what... I'll just close with that idea tonight. What we see in this chapter in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the idea of process. We in the West, the Eastern mind thinks more in a process kind of a way, but the Western mind thinks point of time. You know, I mean, we could just get building block, point of time, and, and this idea of process being extended over is something hard for us to grasp. But that's what I'm submitting to you tonight, and I'll try to develop it more uh, tomorrow night and Thursday night, is what's, going, what's being described here. And I think it fits with the wording there. And I, all I would ask is, hear me out first, and, and then critique it, because we've only gotten into a few of the verses in this chapter, and there's a lot more, it kind of stacks on, on itself a little bit in terms of information. And then, you know, make your, make your own assessment for the Lord. Be a Berean. I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm telling you how I arrived at particular interpretation I'm giving to you tonight. Okay? And, and just again, it is important. It is important. It's the Word of God. It's the overthrowing the faith of genuine Christians, which is a possibility for a believer to do. And I don't want that on my resume at the judgment seat of Christ. You may, you may don't, don't mind, but I, I, I mind. And, and uh, so I think that's important. And I think you do too. All of you, Steve included. So I, but I think that's, that's what we want to make sure we do. We handle the Word of God. Rightly handling the Scriptures. The work we need not be ashamed. <coughs> so it's 8.30, brother. Joe, and, and you can close in prayer. or have someone close in prayer. And we thank you for your hospitality tonight and allowing us to be here.